To interpret those relationships, the really cool bit is adding the epidemiological information on top of the tree. Nine out of these 10 patients that formed this cluster were part of this uh, cruise, but this one wasn't. So then how do they fit into this? And then the epidemiological investigation starts. Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Workshop, a podcast about software and the people who build it. I'm your host, Meredith Luff. Tracking infectious diseases is important work at the best of times, but with a pandemic raging, the people who are doing it are really heroes of the hour. I got to talk to one of them, Anders Gonsalves de Silva, a bioinformatician working at the Melbourne MDU Public Health Laboratory in Australia. He's writing software to track COVID-19 outbreaks across Australia and beyond to help public health authorities stay ahead of the virus. But I started by asking him how he got here. In about 2015, uh, I started working at this uh, public health lab, um, the public health lab for Victoria in Melbourne. And uh, as a bioinformatician, um, which you know, basically uh, writing software to analyze uh, microbial genomic data. And uh, I really enjoyed my work. I really enjoyed the people I worked with. And so when I, we decided to move back to Canada, I went to my boss and said, um, you know, I have nothing to, I have no job lined up in, in Canada and nothing to do. Would you, you know, would you be all right if we just, uh, try just work remotely for you know, six months to 12 months until I find something and, uh, or until we decide that, uh, it's not working anymore. And it's now been two and a half years and I'm still doing it. <laughs> so where are you based? You said four hours? Uh, east of Vancouver. So it's in, in a town called Kelowna. So what's the time gap? Uh, so right now it's sort of seven hours. I mean, it's actually, uh, 19. So I work Sundays to Thursdays here so that I'm always on the sort of Monday to Friday in Melbourne. So you work as a bioinformatician for a public health lab. Yeah. Like take me through those words in sequence. (laughs) What does a bioinformatician do? What does a public health lab do? You write code. Why? Right. Uh, so a bioinformatician, uh, there's a sort of a wide spectrum of what a bioinformatician might be. You know, the parts of it are more in the sort of bio, in the bio side of things and parts of it are more in the informatics side of things or computer science side of things. Um, and uh, you can do anything from uh, data science kind of thing where you're analyzing uh, large troves of genomic data uh, and you're capable of doing that. Uh, a lot of people work in R, basically, just sort of analyzing data and you know, uh, providing different visualization uh, mm-hmm. approaches for data. Uh, or you can be sort of more in the informatics side where you can be developing new algorithms uh, to uh, speed up computation and, and finding new data structures and, and approaches to store information and access it rapidly so that we can, for instance, troll through a whole human genome in uh, a few minutes to be able to actually make a, to provide a clinician with some information that they might want uh, on a relatively short time span rather than spending, you know, 12 or 12 hours or a week throwing through that data. So you can span that sort of the different horizons of that. And I kind of sit in the middle um, of that spectrum. And, well, and you do it for the, and I believe the, the official name, which is a bit of a mouthful, is the Microbiological Diagnostic Unit Public Health Lab at the University of Melbourne, uh, which is part of or funded by the Doherty Institute, uh, in, in case you didn't have enough syllables in that name. Uh, so what is the purpose of this lab? 
so the public health lab uh, is is actually externally funded by the state government, um, and the public health lab is a, it's a, a we are primarily a bacteriological lab, and uh, so we're there to support the the Department of, of Human and Health Services uh, in their invest in their outbreak investigations and surveillance activities. So you know whenever there's an outbreak in Salmonella or something like that, you know the samples come to us. We process them. We generate the information that goes into the Department of Health to make decisions. So something's happened. A whole bunch of Australians in one town have started coming down with Salmonella. The doctors have worked out it's Salmonella. Yeah. So they've taken swabs and sent it all to you. Yeah. What like from the point of view of the Department of Health, yep. what do they want to know? They want to know if it's a common source. Ah, so whether this is just bad luck that a dozen people have salmonella, yep. or whether there is something spewing salmonella into the environment so they need to go find it and shut it down. Exactly. And how do you find that out? Well, we characterize the bacteria in several different ways, uh, but one of the main approaches that we're using now is genomic data. So we basically sequence the whole genome of each bacteria, and then we compare them in, in the context of, of bacteria that might have been sampled uh, in, in that t- same time span throughout the state. So hang on, you just sequenced this thing from scratch because yeah. it really wasn't that long ago that sequencing an entire organism's genome, uh, you know, the Human Genome Project was this huge, many billion dollar ca- collaboration. Yep. And now you just like talk about it offhand like it's a thing you do on a rainy Tuesday morning? Yep. Yep. So we do that. I mean, we do, we sequence about 500 different bacteria uh, a week uh, on average. Um, and we sequence the whole genome to a coverage of 100x uh, typically. So it's, uh, uh, what does that mean? Uh, so we, because the, the way the technology works in that we look at very tiny little bits of the, of, of the genome for sequencing, and we break it up into many little, like a, a a million size puzzle. Um, we uh, we typically to make sure that we have a, a very accurate representation of the genome. We do have a lot of redundancy, so we sequence it many times over, uh, and that way, if there are any errors, uh, we can sort of wash them out by looking at a consensus of all the uh, all the information we have. So the sequencing machine can cope with just a tiny bit of DNA at once, and so you take your bacteria, smash up their DNA into lots of tiny pieces, yeah. feed that to the sequencer, yeah. and then you end up with a read that is, on average, 100 times longer than the genome of that bacterium. And then you, what, you toss it all into a computer and attempt to align them all? Basically, yes. That is essentially the the, the general idea. It's, it's a massively parallel, sort of embarrassing parallel problem. So rather than trying to sequence a whole thing, we're very good at sequencing very short little bits of DNA. So we smash it and we have largely sort of overlapping little bits of DNA. Uh, and then we can very quickly, in a very short amount of time, sequence all those little bits, uh, and then we basically put it into a computer that tries to order them, uh, reorder them back into the, the the genome that originated a bit. Okay, so let's get back to our salmonella outbreak somewhere in a town in Australia. Yeah, you've just received a whole bunch of samples. Yep. For each person's sample, you have. Uh, Splash it up, sequenced it, reassembled it, so you now know uh, with pretty high accuracy the entire genome of the strain of bacteria that's infecting that person and this person and this person and all 12 of them. Why does that help? Uh, so the part, the extra bit of context is that we often also get the food samples that they might have eaten. Um, and we also will get uh, s- samples from uh, the 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 
perhaps the facilities that might have uh, processed that food in some way. Um, so then we're able to compare the bacteria from food samples to the bacteria of the patients, and we also compare within the patients. So the idea is if they are uh, genomically fairly similar, almost to the point of you know, being uh, down to the you know, the nucleotide base where there is one or two differences, so they're very, very, very closely together, that suggests that they're all sharing uh, uh, the same genetically identical or pretty much identical bacteria, which suggests then a common source. And then when we add the food items, we're able to then trace it to say, okay, well, you know what, the, the these bacteria that all these patients share seem to be very closely related to bacteria that were sampled from facility A, which then, you know, then that, that is information that we would pass on to the Department of Health, who then would uh, take steps to pull their product from the shelves and uh, make sure that their facility gets cleaned and stuff like that. So you can go from swabs from a dozen people suffering from salmonella and some of the food they've eaten to stuff taken off shelves. Presumably, the faster you do that, the better. What's the normal like round-trip time between uh, something arriving at your lab and the information going out that enables the appropriate authorities to pull things off shelves? Less than a week. I mean, obviously, there's, there's preemptive work that's already done because they, they have uh, the department has some epidemiological information that they, they can uh, sort of act on, but then we, we sort of reinforce it or uh, make sure that they're, you know, they're happy with what they're doing. Uh, our goal is to reduce that as much as we can, but right now we can do it um, uh, in about a week. For some special cases that are very urgent, we can bring it down to about three days. And is that, in normal life, most of what you spend your time doing? So if there's a cluster of an outbreak of something that looks like a bacterium, you get a bunch of samples, sequence them, do that very quick detective work, and try to work out where it's coming from. And that's like the day-to-day of your life. That's part of it. Part of it is it's a sort of, uh, and we also do a lot of surveillance work. Uh, so we're sort of regularly just sampling things and make sure that there aren't any uh, uh, cases that are uh, suggestive of, of of an outbreak or you know, so that suggests there might be an uptick. We also do uh, surveillance for uh, sexually transmitted infections, uh, so gonorrhea and other things, uh, vaccine preventable. Uh, so my serum meningitis, and we also work uh, with hospitals to uh, monitor and help them react to antimicrobial resistance uh, bugs or superbugs. Oh, and of course, you can detect uh, when uh, a bacterium has acquired resistance to these antibiotics because yes. you're sequencing them all and you can spot, aha, that thing has the penicillin defeater gene, better go yeah. use something else on it. Yeah, that's quite cool. Yeah. So surveillance. Does that mean just like walking up to like, one in a thousand people on the st- on the street and getting a cheek swab? I mean, like how do, how do you do this? How do you look for diseases in a country the size of Australia? Ah, well, you know, we, we have things that are called notifiable diseases. So if anybody shows up with a particular uh, bacteria or a particular uh, antibiotic resistance profile, they have to be notified to us. And so we're collecting this information from all sorts of different sources. Our goal. For, from the last two or three years, has been we sequence everything that comes in the door, and we routinely then produce a sort of a relationship analysis of, of comparing of the genomes of, that of everything that comes in the door to find out things that might have gone under the radar. So bacteria, they don't have male and female; they just produce an exact copy of themselves when they split into two. So how can you tell? Uh, where this one came from or how closely related one is to the other? Like, how does that work? 
unlike, I guess, humans and, and, and other animals, they're not uh, reproducing through uh, sexual reproduction where there's recombination of genes uh, in that respect, but there's still sort of, there's still a vertical transmission of genetic uh, uh, material. So when they, they, they're, uh, they split into two, a, a parent cell splits into two daughter cells, they, they copy it and the copying is not uh, 100% faithful. Uh, there's always a few mutations that crop in. Um, and so eventually as time goes by, uh, you know, they, there are differences that, that crop up independently throughout different lineages that uh, allow us then to find things that are more closely related to, to, to themselves than uh, to other things. So it's it's almost like a clock then from based on how far the genes have drifted, you can kind of guess roughly how many generations those bacteria have gone through to get from one to the other. Under certain assumptions, there is this idea that there, there might be a molecular clock. Um, so that the, so if, if you if you assume that mutations are happening at a regular interval, uh, and oh, yeah, you can then uh, transform that the the number of estimated mutations that you might of, of, of mutation events that might have happened into sort of a calendar uh, time frame. Yeah, and you can put that your, that relationship into uh, how you know, was it two months ago or uh, six months ago or a year ago that they shared a common ancestor. And that kind of thing might be quite useful if you're trying to track the development of, say, antibiotic resistance within a population of pathogenic bacteria. Uh, yes, yeah, it could, and it allows us to then uh, put um, dates to when things might have emerged and one of the most probable, uh, I should say, uh, events that led to the emergence of that. So was it a particular policy that introduced a new antibiotic use or... Uh, is there are there correlations between the emergence of those uh, uh, antimicrobial resistance and uh, you know, the introduction of different antimicrobials into the uh, uh, into the public health system? So that is extremely cool and an application of technology that would have seemed like complete science fiction two decades ago. Yep. But of course, we're talking right now because recent events have turned uh, your world <laughs> along with everybody else's upside down. And uh, suddenly, yep. uh, the entire world is slightly less interested in bacteria than they are in viruses and one particular virus. Yes. So how, how does that impact you? What, and what are you doing? Uh, well... I mean, aside from the uh, the personal impact of living in isolation and in, in a lot of time in my basement these days, I can I can hear the the wet lab biologists crying into their soup over you as they are still forced into their shared air labs uh, where their pets and pet dishes are. Uh, yes, uh, I, I have many colleagues who are yeah in the in the lab uh, processing these samples. Uh, it, it, it well, it's actually had a, a very interesting impact. The the, the pandemic has been uh, turned our priorities uh, upside down. So instead of, uh, you know, all, all our routine work has kind of ground to a bit of a halt. Our Department of Health uh, at, at the state level and, uh, and at the, the federal level uh, have all been requiring us to provide uh, more and more detailed information about um, 
where the clusters are happening, how connected they are. Um, are there, uh, uh, is there evidence, for instance, for healthcare workers acquiring uh, the disease within the hospital setting or whether they are acquired in the community setting? Obviously, if it was in, in, in the hospital, then there was a, a breach of infection control protocols and that needs to be addressed. So you're taking your the toolkit you've just described and turning it onto a different genetic target, onto viruses instead of bacteria. Yep. Uh, what does that look like in practice? Are you? Is this the same principle that just about everybody who gets diagnosed with COVID-19 in Australia, you get a swab? Like, how does this work? What do you do with it? And what does the information do for the Australian public health system? Uh, so it is, uh, in, some rec- in some respects, Similar and in some respects very very different. Uh, the, the the same principles apply. We we get a sample um, because it's an RNA virus. We have to transform it to DNA because we do sequencing. So that's one step that is unusual uh, from from the bacteria perspective. Um, and then because you oftentimes uh, the viruses uh, the amount of viruses that we get in a particular sample uh, is very very low. Uh, we have to amplify that signal. Uh, using something called PCR um, before we're able to sequence it. Amplifying meaning just multiplying it up? Yeah, making copies of it. Mm-hmm. We uh, reproduce in the lab the, uh, the, the mechanism for DNA replication. Uh, and that, that way we're able to sort of amplify that, that signal. So we start off with a single copy or, or you know, maybe a handful of copies of the virus. And then by the end of it, we can, we can have a, a, you know, over a million copies of that, of that virus. So, and then that's ready to be fed into your sequencers and smashed up and reassembled by the computer and all that good stuff we've just been hearing about. Yeah, yeah, and then I mean, there's slightly different steps involved because it's an amplified product, but essentially it's the same. It's the same uh, sort of workflow, and then we end up with a uh, uh, what we call a phylogenetic tree, which is a, a, a graphic representation of the relationships that we we observe in, in the genome. So this is basically a family tree of these virus samples. What came from where? Which ones are more closely related to the others? And yeah. by tree, that sort of implies. Uh, a sort of ancestry yeah how do you work that out the tree that we often get is not uh rooted in any way a sort of so to speak where the ancestor would be but we we typically use that that first uh sequence that came out of um of china the wuhan one that we call it to be the to generate the the root of the tree and that sort of polarizes the tree uh and then we can sort of work out who who's more closely related to whom uh, through that process. And then the the really cool bit is uh, the next step is that, I mean, the phylogenetic tree in itself just sort of tells us a little bit about who's more closely related to whom. But then when we overlay... Oh, so when you say who's more closely, as in whose, virus, whose viruses are most closely related to whom, yeah. which will give you an idea about where they're about, they probably caught them from in the same, similar people or whatever. To, to interpret those relationships, the, the really cool bit is... Uh, adding the epidemiological information on top of the tree. Uh, so then we're at information like, well, uh, these patients were all at the same bar at the same time, or you know, these patients were all on the same cruise, uh, or you know, these patients are all part of the same sort of nursing home or something like that. And then we can actually see those things crop up. Or then we get, you know, nine out of these 10 patients that formed this cluster were part of this uh, cruise, but this one wasn't. So then how do they, you know, 
how do they fit into this? And then the, the, then the epidemiological investigation starts because those are the, the cases where we want to understand how that transmission happened. Ah, so nine out of ten of these people caught, they've probably therefore caught it on the, on the cruise and the tenth person is presumably either going to have caught it from one of them somehow and you are very keen to work out why yeah. or gave it to one of them before they took the cruise and you are very keen to work out why and how. Exactly, yeah. And then we can uh, understand how, so in, in epidemiology, there's a lot of talk about what's the exposures, you know, how, how were, did you uh, acquire that, that infection? Uh, and so those cases where we don't understand immediately what the exposure is uh, are really of, of interest to, to, to understand well, what sort of policies might be effective in trying to reduce exposure. And why is that? Walk me through. Why are those useful for policy? Well, they, they tell us a little bit more about how people are behaving and how the, the, the disease is being transmitted. Uh, so, if, I mean, if, we're, if they're all in the, in, in the cruise, well, we have a pretty good idea what the exposure was, was being in the cruise. Uh, and so that's not, you know, so we should reduce cruises. Uh, people shouldn't go on cruises, perhaps. Uh, Shocking news. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then yeah, if uh, when, when we see a case where we can't explain what the exposure was, immediately, it usually means that we, we need to dig a little deeper into the epidemiology. And then we might identify that, in fact, uh, uh, you know, they were a, a household contact with somebody from a cruise. So, so that, well, that we told them to, to uh, quarantine at home, but you know, they still expose somebody at home. Um, or they were part of the care team for people in that cruise. Uh, and therefore, there might have been a, a, a breach in infection control protocols. Uh, and that one needs to be addressed. Um, so understanding how those those ones that don't fit uh, are really important. And then it also helps us to also break things down. We kind of lump them into a very big event, um, which makes the epidemiology kind of uh, fuzzy because there's you know, uh, it's just a, a, one, one large thing. And then the genomics can help break it down into smaller uh, clusters. So can you give me an example? What would be a big event that you'd want to break down and learn more about? Uh, so, for instance, uh, they, all these clusters are associated to a bar. Uh, yeah. And then, but so there's a, a big event associated with a bar, for instance. And then we, we know, for instance, that people were there at different days in the bar. Um, so how does that relate to, to, to how the transmission is happening? So then we can... Oftentimes, we look at the genomics and demonstrate that, well, you know, the different days of the bar are actually grouped together. So there were, in fact, multiple events happening back to back and you can split it down. And Exactly, yeah. Why is that particularly useful for policy? Ah, well, it's more about the, the, the contact tracing and understanding, well, you know, if, uh, if these people were in multiple groups at, at these bars uh, being infected and spreading it out, uh, then it turns out that, you know, these bars can be a, a big source of transmission because they're often enclosed uh, and people are in close proximity and they, and different groups of people may come and, and patronize that facility over, over time uh, and therefore uh, amplify the signal because it could be that, that now that somebody in the bar is contaminated, but you have different groups coming in and leading up to sort of what we'd probably term as a super spreader event. So can you give me some examples of some interesting results that you found you know what new and surprising has come out of your data uh, that's helping to inform uh, people's 
policy and risk decisions around the coronavirus? Um, so we have def- a number of different questions that we're pursuing. Uh, so one of them is this idea of um, what are the risks now that if we open up, if we open up schools, that you know kids are going to transmit to each other and that uh, kids are going to transmit to staff uh, and what that might mean, for instance, for staff that might work at multiple schools. Um, I think one of the things that sort of cropped up is the the effect that people working in multiple nursing homes may have in seeding in the public health service where they you have workers being in multiple places and then therefore carrying the disease with them. And I think that's sort of now been clamped down on that. You know, you work at one facility only. Uh, you can't move around. Um, if they're kind of contracting it in, in the hospital, you know, that really is an important thing to know um, so that they can go back and in, evaluate their infection control measures. Because, of course, any healthcare worker getting it is a double whammy because not only do you have a new case in someone in contact with a bunch of vulnerable people, uh, but you've also had one of your frontline workers have to go off sick for some number of weeks. So, yeah, worth avoiding. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's a definitely a, a double whammy, so to speak. <laughs> Has this now come down a little bit from fever pitch uh, because... And I say this very enviously from my seat in the UK with a thousand new cases a day. Uh, It sounds to me like uh, the Australian infection control measures seem to be touchwood, getting the thing under control. And your new case numbers are dropping to a level where it's presumably actually getting mercifully difficult to find data for those hypotheses. Uh, yes and no. Um, it ha- there's definitely been a, a big uh, decline um, since the height of our numbers in, in April, uh, although there has been a worrisome trend over the last sort of fortnight of a slight uptick. And, and, as and so, for instance, in Melbourne, it was just announced, I think, yesterday that some of the, uh, some of the measures for a reopening have been rolled back. Um, because there's been concerned about um, uh, some clusters popping up and moving away. So you know, what we're seeing, I guess, in, in a number of places around the world, not only in Australia, a lot of the, the major cases were associated with nursing homes in a lot of places or in, in, in uh, at-risk groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now they seem to be, with some of the reopening measures, being popping up in restaurants and bars and, and other places where you, you get a lot of people uh, merging together. Um, and so you're saying the, the median age dropping of people catching it. Um, and, uh, and so there's definitely a, some concern about what this might mean. Uh, most jurisdictions that I'm aware of are uh, holding their breath and waiting for the second wave to hit. Um, and I, in, in the Northern Hemisphere, there's definitely a, a, a big push in public health labs to prepare for a second wave in the fall. Uh, and what that might mean in terms of uh, some comorbidities with uh, influenza, with the flu. Um, so there's definitely a lot of concern about what, what's going to happen in the future. We're not, from the public health perspective, we are uh, we're cautiously optimistic about what, what, what is going on, but we are also aware that it's probably going to hit again and we want to be prepared uh, to, to be able to uh, respond as quickly as we can and try and shut it down and contain it as, quick, as quickly as we can. So we are nowhere near out of the woods? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, the, the, the new cycle might be ready to move on, but I don't think from the public health perspective, we're... Still on red alert. Yes. So moving back, 
We are having this conversation uh, because you've been helping the PHL uh, build tools for better and more effective information sharing yep. in the Australian public health system. Uh, so to the extent and at the time when you have uh, time to work on this, what is this project? What is it? Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, so the project we, which we call Austracker, um it's been something we've been working for for, for several years now. Um, but so the general idea is uh, it, it is supposed to be a central repository for all this genomic data uh, that we're producing on a regular basis to produce nightly relationship analysis so we can identify uh, outbreaks fairly early on before, they're so, uh, before they really ramp up. And therefore, we're able to intervene much faster uh, and then reduce, obviously, the, the human and economic costs of these outbreaks. So data sharing, sharing with whom? So presumably it's not your lab carrying all of Australia on its shoulders. And so that's why you need to share data. Who are you sharing it with? Uh, so uh, Australia is a, a collection of states. So health remains the responsibility of each state. So each state in Australia has its own sort of public health system and, and privacy laws and confidentiality laws. Mm -hmm. And so historically, exchanging information across these labs and providing sort of a coordinated surveillance across the, the country has been a, uh, a sort of a desire perhaps since the 1970s. Um, and uh, now we're sort of in a really good position to do it because we have the, the genomic data, which is very easy to produce in large quantities. It's fairly uniform across labs, very portable to exchange and analyze in a, in a, uh, a sort of a single uniform framework. Um, so, so we have the different labs producing the genomic information. The idea is to harmonize the computation by providing a central repository for the data that will do the, the bioinformatics uh, in a rather uh, automated fashion so that the, the labs only have to they don't have to concern themselves with the processing of the of the data into information. They just have to concern themselves with interpretation of the information and adding value to it. So uh, walk me through what this would look like in practice. So in practice, it means um, a, a laboratory produces sequence data. And right now we have sort of three major uh, sequencing centers in Australia, which kind of makes sense for us. And we provide uh, assistance to other jurisdictions when they, they need the sequencing capacity. And it all gets pumped into uh, a single uh, bucket, essentially. Um, and then uh, every night we uh, we send off our, our uh, bioinformatic pipelines to process that information, do quality control on the data, uh, then uh, because we're just they're just dumping sequencing data that might involve salmonella, listeria, Neisseria, uh, SARS, you know, all sorts of, of, of bugs. It's all you know, from, it's a text file with DNA sequences on it. We we tend to identify what what's in the, the those files and uh, bin them into taxonomically relevant categories, uh, and then we do our uh, idea is to make the then the, phy the phylogenetic trees. Uh, um, identifying any new potential relationships that might be relevant from an epidemiological perspective and put that on a web page that people can see and visualize and interact with. So they just add the sequencing data and this platform will take care of turning that into, hey, here is a phylogenetic tree of this sample of listeria plus 
all the listeria samples connected, uh, collected in all the neighboring states. So you can see actually this, this single patient you got is part of a cluster from over there. Yep. And then, and we're also we're we're planning on sucking in uh, international data into it as well, so we can actually see it in an international context as well. That is very cool. Uh, so, what stage is the thing at? Uh, so we're right now we're sort of in uh, alpha testing. We we had uh, we had a plan uh, going that's kind of been turned up on on its head um, because of COVID, um, and uh, where there is a big push for sort of coordination at the national level of surveillance. Uh, and uh, so our platform, which was originally designed, we're, we were going to do it for sort of salmonella and hysteria, and we had all these plans of putting it into place. And now sort of actually, instead of doing a lot of the, the back end, we were sort of focusing more on the front end and putting out pictures and, and making trees and making sure that the data is accessible, the, the finalized product is accessible to to. To people, so we're doing some alpha testing now. Uh, with we've got uh, users from different, some select users that are technically quite capable from different jurisdictions to log on, try it out, just press every button, make it break, tell them, tell us what uh, what's working and what's not, and what we need to improve so that we can sort of rapidly tr- turn it around. And then the idea is to have it hopefully live by the end of uh, July. So that's the point where it will in fact become the way that other states within Australia find out how their COVID samples relate to other outbreaks. Yep. yep. And then and initially our goal was just to, just to do sequence data. We weren't going to take any of the privacy, private sort of metadata that uh, would put the, the, the genomic sequences in context. But now because of, the, of COVID, uh, we have pushed that feature that was supposed to be in version 3.0 down to version 1.0, where we're trying to bring in and overlay that uh, the, the private information. And what what kind of information is this? Is this like who this person is, where they were? Like, uh, so uh, part of it is uh, travel. If they have they traveled overseas or not? So that was a big exposure, whether they caught it overseas or not, uh, whether they're associated with a, a big event like a cruise or a bar, whether they're a healthcare worker or not, when they likely started exhibiting symptoms, when the sample was collected. Gender and age are also something that we, we look for uh, to try and understand the stratification of the, uh, of the disease. Those are the main sort of minimal sort of bits of metadata, I think, that we, and then uh, and, and travel within uh, within Australia, so across jurisdictions. Because right now, most of our travel within the country is also restricted. So, but as, as it starts to open up, we'll need to know that information. So, as these labs are submitting these samples, then they're not just dropping a genome sequence into a bucket. They're saying this sequence from a 38-year-old man who was at this bar, which we think is a spreading event, and travelled to X country in Y days ago. Yeah. And is your platform then trying to help make sense of that so they can correlate it with uh, the cases that are being picked up in other states? Yeah. So then the big big thing for us is is, uh, the the visualisation of the phylogenetic tree with uh, the decorators, which we call the, the epidemiological decorators. So you can think of it, it's, is it a bare Christmas tree or does it have you know, all the bubbles and, and all the fun, the fun bits on it? <laughs> so this is a pretty aggressive timetable for taking uh, something that was, you know, being already like you know, slowly rolled out and developed and you had 
plans for months from now, and now it has to go live in July. Uh, and we are, of course, uh, talking about this uh, because you have been building this with Anvil. Yeah. Uh, is that primarily because the backend tools are already pretty Python-ish? Uh, absolutely, yes. I mean, before COVID started, the idea was always to build a public health lab tool to bring some transparency. So we have, you know, we have a really good people that are trained in, in, in epidemiology and understand the genomic data, but they're not comfortable with the command line. And most of the bioinformatics tools, they're always being built sort of on either Perl or Python uh, running out on the command line. Um, and my one of the things that I've, I've been really keen to do is add that layer of transparency. Like you, don't, you shouldn't know how to use the command line to be able to access this information. Uh, and the web always seemed like a uh, the, the the best way of going about this because it has that interactive feature to it. And for the longest time, I was you know, playing around with JavaScript and trying to learn Angular and then Vue.js and CSS and and all that stuff. And I and, but I had a whole team of of people who write Python. And then I, you know, I was listening to the, the um, python.init podcast where you were talking about Anvil. I'd, I'd mucked about a little bit with Django and Flask in the past as well, but I never never quite thought that they would do all the things that I needed. And I, I remember it because I was, I was walking around the neighborhood when I was listening to it and I just sat at my doorstep and I, on my phone, pulled up anvil.works and I was like, yep, this is what we need because <laughs> I want something that we can maintain over time and I can seamlessly integrate to our workflow. And I think that's what Anvil gives us that ability to quickly move from something that's on the command line to something that a command line naive person can use, but who has other expertise that are relevant to the data. So by integrating into your workflow, what you really mean is taking the bioinformatics tools that are Python command line libraries and turning that into something that people can use. So it's about putting a user interface on a whole bunch of complicated data science and epidemiology. Yes, but doing it, yeah, doing it in a way that uh, you don't have to sort of play around with GUIs and desktops stuff like that, like Kivi or something like that. I just it's on the web. Anybody with a browser can access it. And crucially, it's live, so that once you've uploaded something into one of these buckets, then someone two states over has access to that information immediately, as opposed to yeah. when they update some local data file. Exactly. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense as, as, as part of our whole strategy. So over the last five, five, six years, we've been in this sort of transition to genomics in public health, and in particular at our lab, where we're moving all our workflow in the wet lab from multiple complex workflows that are bacterial specific to a single workflow where it is all going to the DNA sequencer and we replicate what's um, what's done on the wet lab on the computer. And it made sense to then, well, we continue on that single workflow, having a, a, a means of uh, exposing what we're doing on, on the command line to a broader audience through Python, because then we can easily maintain it and, and keep it up to date and, and add features to it, because I already have a team of people who know Python. So yeah, how big is that team? Is uh, is this just the uh, the PHL standing bioinformatics team? Uh, our team at, at MDU is uh, sort of myself and uh, three others uh, are sort of the the full time bioinformaticians, and then we have a uh, our, our our lead bioinformatician Torsten Seaman. Uh, he is sort of part time with us, and he's sort of part time with the Doherty Institute. Um, Does this then mean that the rest of the team has the ability to? 
maintain this stuff and to put user interfaces on the things that they're building? Yeah, so I've, I've got sort of this main us tracker framework that we work in, which we're working right now in putting COVID as, as our main sort of driving horse. But I have one of our uh, other bioinformaticians basically clone it and have it as, a, as the upstream and working on how we move that same framework to do TB surveillance uh, in the country. And uh, which is a, not the, the, our main problem, but the idea is that we can then develop it on the side with having the, the main OzTracker framework as the as the upstream, and and so doing Git merges, um, and then we can once they they're happy with that that group, then we can bring it into the main platform uh, fairly easily. And then we have another bit of group that's working on one of our big roadblocks has not been putting tests on the ground and, and generating the data, it really has been about integrating the different data sources uh, so that we can have, so we can decorate the tree properly because there are a number of different databases and they all have slightly different field names for the same thing. Uh, and so we have a, another group working uh, on the uh, on, on integrating these very different data sources through Python scripts into a database that feeds into, uh, into Anvil and then we can expose it and make it you know, very easily a CRUD where the epidemiologists can uh, edit it. And then we can then simply do an, an, a, an API request to that database and update our trees. So, I, And this is, frankly, as it should be, right? Yes. The actual hard work is happening, not in the user interface. You know, displaying the file of the genetic tree should not be the hardest part of this job. No. Uh, so what have you got running back there? Is it just like a whole bunch of big ETL jobs that run every night, grubbing over one database, spitting into another? <laughs> uh, parts, yeah. Parts of it is just, yeah, that and, and a lot of data cleansing because uh, there are a lot of non-controlled fields and we have to sort of then, we do a lot of uh, data wrangling and finding the edge cases and misspellings and stuff like that and try to put <laughs> They do say 95% of the work of the data scientist is data cleaning. Yeah. Exactly. And that's a big part of what we're trying to do and just sort of bring in all these different sources collated into something that's coherent and usable. Um, so yeah, a lot of ETL and then a lot of uh, sort of workflows of just uh, processing the sequence data, producing the phylogenetic tree and, and doing quality control. And then shipping it out automatically. So when people come into work the next morning, the updated data is there. Yeah. And so, yeah, so now the next step for us is to expose a, a sort of a, a, yeah, either through the through the Anvil uplink or through an HTTP uh, REST API, a way of just sort of ingesting the, the tree, um, the process tree back into the database so that it's automatically viewable. So to wrap up, I guess, two questions I always ask. And the first thing is, what's the most surprising thing you've learned in this process? Uh, in, I suppose, this whole journey of uh, deciding Austracker was the thing that was needed, uh, setting up how to build it, and then having your plan smashed to smithereens in January, February 2020. But what do you reckon surprised you most? Um, a positive surprise for me has been the sort of the journey for me. As an undergrad in biology, back in the day, I had a real acrimonious relationship with my immunology and microbiology teachers. Um, who I thought were far too involved in the medical side of things. 
to the point where I actually refused to complete an exam because I think one of the questions was, what's the best way to sterilize uh, hospital linen? <laughs> so I just I handed in the exam blank. I, this is absurd. Where's the biology in all this? <laughs> And now I found myself having really embraced public health and being amazed at the people that work in it. And I feel that I can actually make a difference to people's lives by doing what I'm doing. Uh, and if I can get people to share data in this space, I think it will be a massive win for uh, for for the for public health community and for the uh, the to the people that depend on it. Um, so I think that's uh, the the big surprise for me is, is yeah finding myself in this position where I, I, I'm working with microbiologists and immunologists and I enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> so last question, as always, in one sentence, why Anvil? Because it fits very nicely with what we do and it allows us to you know, just get the job done without having to faff about with JavaScript and all that. All right. <laughs> Anders Gonçalves de Silva uh, from the Microbiological Diagnostic Unit Public Health Laboratory in Melbourne. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for Anvil. You've been listening to Stories from the Workshop. I've been Meredith Luff. I've been talking to Anders Gonçalves de Silva. And if you want to learn more about what we've been talking about, see the show notes or subscribe. You can find us at anvil.works podcast. This episode was edited by Baz Richardson, the music is by Signal Smith, and I'll be back next month with more stories from the workshop. See you next time.